What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Movies Good Podcast. My name is Pyman, and I'll be your host for today. There's a lot to talk about. There's, in the UK at least, a couple of these films have been out for a while in the US already, but in the UK at least, it's been quite a filled week of film. And we got a little bit of catching up to do, because yes, last week was crazy as well. So, there's a lot to talk about, yeah. Uh, first off, we got to talk about the John Wick franchise. John Wick Chapter 4 came out this week, and you know what? This is a weird franchise for me, and I keep feeling like it's going to take a major dip eventually. I... <laughs> I, st- I still, and spoilers, it goes for the fourth as well, I still like each successive entry in the franchise more than any of the previous ones. Which is crazy. I just I never feel this way for any other franchise. But for this one, and I've not had a lot of time to digest since I got out of the cinema watching the fourth one, but even so, this one was just, it hit differently for me. And uh, I, I saw the third one in the cinema. The first two I didn't actually see in the cinema. So maybe that's part of it. But for me, I mean, there's a few elements here. The first one is, like, the story. Because in action films, especially sequels, it gets really silly after a certain point, the story. And, I mean, to a degree, yeah. But when you think about where this franchise started, the first John Wick film was just sitting around going, Okay, so, you killed my dog. I want to kill all of you. That's it. <laughs> that was as far as that story went. And from that moment, from the first one, they have done this incredible sort of world building for this giant underground. And at the start of the fourth one, he really feels like he's just going to be able to go through all of them. Just everyone, kill everyone <laughs> in the whole underground, basically. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I feel like the first act was a little bit directionless here. He's basically, it's picking up, pretty much exactly where we left off in the third one. At the end of the third one, he'd been blasted off a building by Winston. Horrible betrayal. And he uh, he'd find himself with the Bowery King, and he was like, hey, do you want to just murder everybody? And John was like, yeah. So he's kind of healed up. I don't really know how long that took. Judging, you know, it was a whole... It's a big building he fell off. I'm guessing it's been about uh, three days. That's, that's probably how long it takes him to get completely better after falling off a freaking building. That was the first time, and... There's more times in this one where you really go, okay, so he's he's really only still alive because of plot armor. <laughs> that, that was a real, all right. But you just got to roll with it and accept that. And uh, you can, if you can do that, if you manage to do that at the end of the third film and still enjoy it, you'll probably still enjoy everything that happens here. There are a few moments of, uh, there's there's a few just little, yeah... It's getting a little silly how many people are there and how well-trained they're all meant to be. And, like, they just have to... Sh- just one person has to shoot them in the head. And, really, they've never sent, like, a like a sniper. Not really. <laughs> they always send people that he can just fight face-to-face with. You don't need, like, a, just one sniper. You, like, at this point, like, they're willing to give, like, $26 million at one point. I think the, the price gets up to on his head in this film. Would you not just, like, send a missile and a nerve agent? I don't know. I've... <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of potential ideas there that could just get rid of him if you really just wanted to get rid of him. But you've got to suspend your belief a little bit in any action film. And this one wanted to go bigger again than any of the previous ones. And it manages that, which is awesome. And it is so cool. And I've got to say, especially the third act of this film is nothing short of breathtaking. I was I, I was aghast. I, my jaw was open for a full sequence, basically, at one point in the third act, which all of, basically, the whole third act just takes place in Paris. It's a new for the franchise, because up until now, I think all three, 
kind of big finales were all in New York? Um, yeah, yeah, they were. So it is new that he doesn't come back to New York for the finale after going somewhere else. That was literally, I mean, the first one was all New York. The second one, he is in New York and then goes to Rome and then comes back to New York for the finish. And the third one, he is in New York and then goes to uh, Casablanca um, and then comes back to New York for the finish. So it's kind of, that, that was a very formulaic way it was doing that. I never minded. It is all about the action scenes and how good they are. And they get better each time, which is unbelievable. Donnie Yen is the main kind of guy put against him this time. He doesn't want to. He's an old friend of his. And there's also this whole friendship they have with Hiroki Sanada, who's playing the manager of the Osaka Continental. Um, that is where we kind of get the big first act fight scenes and... Wow, <laughs> they were just so good, but you could tell at the same time that there was just something being left in the tank as a little appetizer for later in the film. It's a two-hour, 40-minute film. It, I'll say that it does kind of feel like it is that long, but not in a bad way. It doesn't exhaust itself, although, to be fair, yeah, I always go see any of the new films I'm seeing for the week at once, basically, as much as I can at the cinema. <laughs> and that, just the way the timings worked out, was my first one of the day. So, I did. I did, going into my other films that I saw that day, feel tired. I'll say that much. Um, I'm still tired talking about this now. But it's a good kind of exhaustion. It's not a, oh my god, like, jeez. I think in the Osaka Continental, that first act, it it got a little bit to the point by the end where you were just like, right, jeez. <laughs> Like, we, we know he's going to get out of here, you know. He just keeps going through the same kind of fights with these guys. But it was well done. It was well executed. And then he goes, um, he's, got, he's, got, he's got little side quests. Um, basically, he has this new villain. He's a Marquis. Mar Marquis? Marquis? I don't know. It's Bill Skarsgård, who puts on a nice performance. And I liked the fact, spoiler alert, that he doesn't really do a lot of fight scenes. I feel like it's interesting, because we have characters like Winston, who is never really fighting. He's always there, being more of a string puller. And while the high table's always in the background is this kind of, yes, upper, upper thing that we've met members, and he's killed members, but we don't really see them as a body pulling the strings so much. We see, like, emissaries. Like, in the third one, we had, we had an emissary of theirs doing everything. And there is an emissary of theirs doing stuff in this as well. But uh, Bill Skarsgård is kind of the guy they've appointed to be the main, you're going to get rid of John Wick, do whatever you got to do, and he really goes for it. And um, and yeah, it's a great performance by Bill Skarsgård, but uh, to get to him and to take him out, John basically has to go through all of, uh, it's a side quest. It does, it, it does feel like a side quest. The scenes are well done, but there is a second act aspect of it just being like, okay, Instead of just going and finding this guy and killing him, he's going to go on this side quest. By the end of the film, I really don't mind the fact that the first act, the fight scenes last a little long, and the second act, it is a side quest. You do feel at the end, like, yeah, if they wanted to, could they have cut 20 minutes off the runtime because it is 2 hours, 40 minutes? Yeah, sure they could have. <laughs> I think they probably could have. But I don't mind. I don't mind because it's just such a fun world to be in. It, Keanu plays the character in such a fun, delightfully monosyllabic way. Like, he, he does not care how many films we do. He will not 
changed up that character, changed the style. He plays it in the same way, but you do, in these very intimate, quiet moments, learn more about the depth of John's character and the depth of his love for his wife. That is that is at the heart of all of these films, which is admirable and unusual in a really nice way. But I gotta say, you can complain about the first act, all the Osaka continental scenes. You can complain about some of that stuff. You could, yeah. I, I, I don't feel the need to. I really enjoyed it, but I could see where, where you'd have complaints. The second act, the whole side quest aspect, there's... There are great scenes there, I gotta say. And there is one scene in particular where he's facing off against this, um, well, it's a high table member. And um, oh, it's just so beautifully shot. That that before even the third act, which I'll get to, really had me like going, whoa, just because of, of the way it was shot. The cinematography in this film feels as much as the action scenes, if not more so, like it has been leveled up from the third film. Because... There, it's like this waterfall kind of scene in this nightclub and you've still got people dancing in the background while they're fighting, which again, is that silly? Sure, but just go with it because it's awesome. And, <laughs> and I think that's the point of these films at this point is just let them be a little bit too silly so that they can go a little bit bigger because it's so cool what they do when they go bigger. It's so great. There is one amazing fight as well. It's mostly in the Osaka Continental um, where John uses nunchucks and, whoa. <laughs> I've trained. I've trained in jiu-jitsu before. I've learned a lot of fighting with nunchucks, but I, I it was that was breathtaking. I've never seen anything even remotely comparable to that. That was amazing. Um, so I love that. I love the waterfall fight scene in the nightclub in the second act. So there was already two really, really top-notch scenes that had me going, ho, ho, ho before you get to the third act. And the third act takes place in Paris, and basically, John's got to get to this duel with this guy. He's got to get there by sunrise. And he's just let loose in the city, and they just send him out there, and there's a, it's, so, it's such a cool framing device for this act, and also, it's also beautifully done and filmed. There's basically this radio station in Paris where this woman is sending out signals to all of the hitmen in the city because they just want everyone on his ass. They want him dead before he can make it to this place. It's so well executed. The songs that she plays, it's so well done. That is beautiful. The cinematography of all these fights is beautiful. There are three major ones that I can really think of. The first one is at the Arc de Triomphe. It's in traffic. There's traffic just continually going. Even though this must be like three or four in the morning. You wouldn't think it would be such gridlock traffic. How bad is Paris for traffic, man? But it is amazing. I think that might be my favorite scene in the entire John Wick franchise. That was so well filmed, so well executed. It felt amazing. I love that so much. Um, it was beautiful. And then he just keeps going because he gets out of there eventually. And then he goes into this like abandoned house after getting caught there. And that scene... There's a lot of it is filmed from a kind of top-down perspective, which was a totally new idea for this franchise, and it was so beautiful. It was so well done as well. Love, I love the execution and the cinematography of all these scenes. And, wow, I mean, yeah, just the way... You don't think they can level it up again, but it, even in terms of weaponry, there's... I think it's that scene it was where he has this these guns that have... Um, it's kind of explosive bullets, and 
Wow. Again, just the way it looks and feel, it's so well executed. It's so beautiful! I can I can I could rave about this all day, literally. It it was amazing. And then there's a third incredible fight scene in this act because he then almost makes it to where he's gotta be, but he's gotta make it up this like set of I think they're just famous steps in Paris. There's like two hundred and twenty steps. And he's just fighting guys the whole way going up them, and that as well. Probably less so than the other two, but it was still just an incredible, breathtaking action sequence, and wow. And then the ending actually comes after all that. Those three incredible scenes are all almost back-to-back-to-back, to back to back. and it works. It doesn't feel like it should work so incredibly well. It really does. <laughs> it really does. You know, I really came into this episode thinking I was going to, like, do a whole segment on, like, the whole John Wick franchise in general. But I was so blown away by the fourth film that I've just kind of spent the whole time talking about that. And it really is. It's It deserves to be seen in the cinema. It really is that good. I'm really glad I did because maybe, maybe I'm sleeping a little on, like, the cinematography um, of the first two films. But it feels like they've leveled it up so much since then. And I mean, they have a bigger budget, I think. So it, it makes sense that they have. But it is incredible the way they film these things. The ending itself, I won't talk about too much for spoilers. But um, it leaves things interestingly ambiguous as to what's going to happen next. Um, and they did say, I think, that they wanted to take some time off from the franchise after this one. Which is fair. This was a massive production to put together. And uh, they've, they've kind of been working... Not just on these films for the last 10 years, but on a lot of it. And I know that Chad Stahelski, the director, is doing a Ghost of Tsushima film, which should be freaking incredible. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, I will say that the cast of this one is awesome. Akira, who played, uh, she was um, Hiroki Sonata's daughter. She was the concierge of the Osaka Continental. She's a new character that I was kind of expecting to see a piece of news when I looked it up after that they'd already announced a spin-off for her. They may well do one. It would not surprise me. They've already got a spin-off with Anna Darmus in the works. Um, she's going to be playing a ballerina who uh, she was kind of, uh, she was meant to be like part of the third chapter, I think. And the character was, but not played by Anna Darmus. So um, I'm interested in that. I think that's going to be great. If they do other spin-offs, with other, I mean, like Halle Berry's character from the third one, if you did a spin-off with just Winston, just Ian McShane playing him, doing like, you know, pulling the string stuff around here, just managing the Continental, I would love that. I think there's so much possibility in this franchise now, it is going to branch out like crazy from here, I would imagine, and it really should. And I got a shout-out Donnie Yen, because that was, oh, he's such a legend, and it does feel... Um particularly in the first act when they first collide in the Osaka Continental, it feels like one of those moments in cinema, like action cinema history. You know, when, when you put all the people on, on screen and the Expendables together and you go, wow, look at them. And when you, you do like Chuck Norris versus Bruce Lee, things like that, it feels like, wow, this is the moment. Keanu Reeves versus Donnie Yen. It's just such a colliding of generational talents in this genre. It's so cool. And... um that, that goes down a little bit because they are, like, almost too friendly throughout the film. So by the end, the big finale, it kind of... It's not quite there as much, that, like, legendary feeling of that. But the kind of awe-inspiring scene they have is is in the Osaka Continental. That's another great just bit in the first act. It really is. You put it all together. It's a film that deserves... And maybe because it's the, just another John Wick film, it won't. But it deserves recognition on... Just an astounding level as far as the action genre goes. It really, 
I can't think of the last action movie that blew me away like that. Maybe Dread. <laughs> I loved Dread. That was great. This is this is on that level of just totally mind blowing me. I thought it was so fantastic. And that was only one of the films to come out this week. It really blew my mind and made me like it ruined me for other movies this week. I gotta say, <laughs> uh, that that is the problem with kind of trying to go and see everything on a on a Friday or a Saturday so that you can film on the Sunday and get the podcast up for a Monday, is you do you do have to just go through however many films come out that week all at once. And I wish I hadn't done that one first, because, man, a good person came out this week. And um, I wasn't expecting a lot from this. Basically, if you don't know the story, Florence Pugh plays this woman who gets in a car accident. She's driving. The people in the car die, including her would-have-been sister-in-law. Fast forward a year, and she's trying to get back on her feet, but she's addicted to the painkillers they put her on, and she's not engaged anymore. And the guy who was going to be her father-in-law is played by Morgan Freeman and ends up in the CMAA meeting as her. And basically, they just form this friendship that... It's just a heartwarming kind of film. It's it's not as feel-good. It's one of those films that's kind of, oh yeah, this is a feel-good movie, and then you watch it, and it's like an hour and 20 minutes of sadness, basically. Not not as bad as some of those are, because Florence Pugh just has this charm and charisma that kind of comes across even when she's playing this really sad, depressed drug addict. She, she's still kind of... There's these moments of just charm and uh, comedy and joy. Uh, which are kind of interspersed amongst all of the, whoa, <laughs> all of the not so happy moments. Um, I didn't expect much from this, honestly, because pff, mostly because it was a Sky original film. And normally, Sky original films, yeah, even if they've got good talent in them, are not really that well written. They're fairly low budget, and they don't work out that well. Um, I've seen a few, and I've never really been. Yeah, even kind of impressed, but this one was different. Um, firstly, it was actually in the cinema. I did get to see it in the cinema. It's kind of coming to Sky, uh, if you're in the UK, in four or five days, but it's getting kind of a release in the cinema first, at least a limited one. don't know how big it is. Um, I don't feel like it's a really necessary big screen one. It's not. It's a quiet, intimate film most of the time, and uh, it doesn't really need... A grand viewing platform, but it it is a very nice, beautiful kind of film. I think it's just nice to see two talents like that, because Morgan Freeman, I mean, pff, he's been playing that one old guy who's really good at acting for 35 years now, maybe? When was Driving Miss Daisy? I think that was 89, so like 34 years. Um, it's been a long time, and it's... It's just another great performance by him. It's just, at this point, another great performance by Florence Pugh. Uh, she does it really well. I've not really seen her like this before. It, it's interesting. I feel like an actor of her caliber should be, not made, but should have a role at some point like this. It, it feels right somehow that um, that kind of person just down their luck, heartwarming film, gets back on their feet. Nice. <laughs> Nice role to take on. It's not one of her most major ones. It's not going to be remembered as one of her best performances, I don't think, even. You know, in the last, like, two or three years, she's given, like, another five performances, at least on this level. Um, it's so good, though. I really enjoyed it. It's it's not a must-see movie, 
by any means. I don't think it's a five-star, oh, wow, blockbuster, incredible performances or anything like that. But it is, it's a sweet film. It's got really nice performances. It's got a nice script. It's got a few different things that just really make you go, hmm. About life, about getting back on your feet after unspeakable tragedy. Um, it is nicely done. I don't love Zach Braff as a director. Uh, I think he's fine. Some some of the choices, some of the cinematography he does, it's... Yeah. It's, it's not especially weird. There's nothing really crazy or out there about it. It's not really plain either. Um, th- it is just, it's just personal preference. I think for me personally on some of the way he chooses to film things, but it is well done. I did really enjoy the film. And even after watching John Wick 4, this was my one that I went into right after that, I still had just a nice, pleasant time with it, even though I was just, uh, my like I, I had the equivalent of having my asshole ruined by John Wick Chapter Four. <laughs> I was just I was left on the floor. I was done. Uh, I needed a cigarette after that one. <laughs> but even so, I managed to go into this one and really have a nice time with it. It's a pleasant film that I would definitely watch again. I should mention John Wick Chapter Four, literally on like an eighty-seven out of a hundred for me. High, high level. Good person. It's like a 71. It's definitely like a middle-of-the-road four-star movie. I would be shocked to see anybody giving it five stars, really. Um, the performances are the closest thing that comes to five stars. Everything else is more of a lower four-star kind of thing, you know. But John Wick 4, easy five-star. Easy five-star. And I didn't necessarily expect that. Because I just couldn't imagine the franchise getting better and better and better again. But it happened. So those are the two big new releases this week here. But, um... (sighs) Infinity Pool. (laughs) What to say about Infinity Pool? I was... You know, I feel like for for different people being involved, I was like, oh, oh, for Infinity Pool. Because, um, Mia Goth, wow. (laughs) It'd be very interesting to have a, like, proper poll and try to decide who is the best scream queen of the last like almost decade I'd say yeah because you've got people like Jenna Ortega between like the scream movies babysitter 2 Wednesday of course like there's just she's on a huge level and she's really like really upped her stock in the last, like, year or so. Wow! She's still so young. But then you've got, like, Samara Weaving, who was in Scream 6, and she did The Babysitter, which I loved, and she did Ready or Not, which I loved. She's she's really done some great ones. And then there's Mia Goth. And Mia Goth is awesome. And I feel like she does play... <laughs> Pretty similar characters in a lot of these movies. X and Pearl. I talked about Pearl last week. Awesome. Really liked both of them. Even when I didn't expect to, necessarily. Um, Infinity Pool is another one. She is playing a character who, as you go through the film, in some ways you find it a similar character to the one she's playing in X and Pearl. Um, There are obvious differences. Basically, the film uh, is about this guy who's an author, he um, and his wife are on this island resort in what is really, I think it's a made-up country. Um, 
I definitely heard them mention a, a country. I, I think it's a made-up country. Uh, it's meant to be like this tropical island, kind of really nice place. A little lax on some laws. And uh, he accidentally gets into a car accident after meeting this mysterious woman, Mia Goth, and her husband. And, um, and then he gets arrested for accidentally killing this guy in a car accident. And finds out that in this country, you can pay, if you're rich, to have them make a clone, essentially, of you. And then they'll kill the clone instead of executing you for your crimes. And you just get to walk away. The premise is weird. Um, the whole thing, as you might not be surprised to learn, is a satire of the rich and famous. We've seen a few of these recently. Not yeah, no, there's been a few kind of horror ones as well, but it's normally about hunting people. This one isn't one of those. But <laughs> that was a really big fad, I feel, in the horror genre like two or three years ago. Like, just films where pe rich people were hunting other people. Yeah. It was a big thing for a while. It's kind of gone away for now, but this is what's new, apparently. It's directed by Brandon Cronenberg. Not David Cronenberg, who I really... I don't want to exist near David Cronenberg films. I don't like body horror. Just personally, body horror is weird. And I'd not seen a Brandon Cronenberg film, so I wasn't sure quite what to expect from his style. It's not as close to his father's style as I would have been worried about. It's not really, like, out there body horror, which really, like, I saw Crimes of the Future last year that David Cronenberg did, and I was just... Bleh. I didn't want to eat for the rest of the day. Um... <laughs> Just, it's just not, it's just no. But Brandon Cronenberg, um, it is it, it is kind of, there's weird body stuff, but it's more of a psychological aspect to it than active, like, weird body shit. There's little bits of that, but it's it feels more like an ode to his father, <laughs> those little bits, instead of the whole film being one, which is good. Uh, Mae Goth, really good performance. Uh, I feel like she was led off the leash halfway through the film and and got a little wilder with it and I'm okay with that. It was good. It was interesting. Um, the whole thing in general... At one point, I felt like I was really going to hate the film. And then, midway, I really felt like I might like the film quite a lot. By the end, it had kind of evened out and I'm just left going... Eh. I feel like there's some really interesting points it makes. It goes a little too Looney Tunes, just trying to make the points. And yeah, I like some of the performances, but I feel like there's just way too much of the runtime by the end of it is spent on weird, dreamy, ooh, floaty sequences with an odd amount of very strange nudity. Um, and for some people, they'll really like those sequences. I just felt like they went on too long. There were too many of them. And it's just kind of like, all right, by the end of it, I was going, stop. <laughs> Please, why? Stop it. Just do other things. Um, so, yeah, a bit too much of that. And it's not really that scary or that psychological by the time you reach the third act, the last half hour. Um, it's kind of played its cards, and then it's just trundling i think towards the finish is the best way to describe it it's not really doing that much it's not that fantastic um i couldn't really love it in the way i, I wanted to and i'd put it below as far as mia goth films go i put it below x or pearl um which is a shame because i i didn't have huge expectations but i thought i'd kind of like it 
on the same level as X, maybe. I didn't really, but I'd give this, like, still a 54 out of 100. I feel like it's a middle-of-the-road three stars for me by the end. It could have been more. It definitely could have been less with some of the weird shit it was really starting to tread into at one point. It interested me enough that overall I'd say, yeah, fine. Not great, but fine. The other film that um, came out this week is 80 for Brady. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah. Whereas Infinity Pool ended up being three stars where it could have really been a four star or a two star or one star, 80 for Brady is a film I went in thinking that is going to be a three star movie and I was proven 100% correct. It was it was bog standard along the line the whole time. Never had a doubt in mind. <laughs> um, basically, 80 for Brady is about these four friends who are, well, three of them are in their 80s, one of them's in their 70s, who decide they're going to go to the Super Bowl to see Tom Brady because they are old and might die soon. And wow, yeah, God. And I mean, look, we've seen these films before. Things like Last Vegas, even Red was just a more action y take on it. The Bucket List. They're, films about old people are always, hey, Let's do something weird and wild because we could die soon. And I, yeah, of all the films I've named off, I don't, well, this is kind of on the same level as Las Vegas, probably. It's it's not better or on the level of the other two. Um, and there are a lot of other films in the same vein. One kind of comes along every few years. To be fair, they've done their fair share of a group of old guy actors getting together for one last ride. I don't know if I've at least seen one before that is a group of ladies doing the same thing. And look, I really like Lily Tomlin. I like Sally Field. I like Jane Fonda. I haven't seen her in much recently, but yeah, no, that's, that's it's fine, you know? It's it's a great cast, it really is. Um, and Diane Lane is the fourth. And it is, it's a good cast, you know? <laughs> um, I don't like the Patriots and I don't like Tom Brady. I watched the NFL. It was just kind of like uh, a little bit. Okay, there was a little bit of uh, just having to watch this whole major comeback he made in that Super Bowl, which I watched live and did not enjoy myself through because he made a massive comeback when I didn't want him to. But you can set that aside because it's about the love of the game and about these old friends having one last nice trip and getting into weird situations where they... Start making out with guys in closets, enter hot wings competitions, lose their tickets, and yeah, just there's just various random little side bits. It it doesn't feel like <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. And then it kind of sort of does at the end. It it, it feels half-assed. The film feels half-assed. I like this cast. I don't want to say it, but this film feels half-assed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's nice. It's okay that it is. They can just phone it in. They've all got legendary careers behind them. They want a little payday. They want to have a little fun. I hope they did. It seems like it was a fun set to have and to be on, and it was fine. Would I watch it again? Not really. But was it actually that bad? No. <laughs> it does feel a little half-assed. It doesn't actually come out that terrible at the end. I wouldn't bother going to see this in cinema if it was on the TV one night and you hadn't seen it before. I don't think you should turn it off. You'd probably have a fine time with it. But it's not... I can't exactly come out and say, oh yeah, 
that was good. It's just kind of average. They've got Tom Brady and Gronk and other players that turn up for cameos and various little bits at the end. And that was fine. It was nice. And there was some genuinely funny moments. Not that many. <laughs> no, not really that many laugh out loud moments. It it feels a little old and tired. And I'm sure by the end of making it, the actors probably were as well. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. It's a kind of bog standard 52 out of 100 for me, you know. It's down the line. I kind of say if something hits 50, I don't actually dislike it. That's kind of that's kind of the marker around about. So it's on the verge of not liking it, but I can't say that I don't like it. It's... It's alright. It's, <laughs> it's just alright. And uh, yeah, once again, I never at any point seeing the trailer, trying to get myself hyped up for it, watching it, there was never a moment where I thought it was going to be higher or lower than I really put it. So yeah. Um, there was one film that we kind of left out last week. It was a new film last week because there were just so many new films last week. Uh, and I can kind of catch up with it this week. I've, I've seen it now. I, yeah. This is another one I just couldn't get myself hyped up for. The Magician's Elephant. Uh, it's a new Netflix animated movie. And I gotta say, in general, like, Netflix have a history of releasing animated movies that I can't get myself hyped up for and end up loving. There's a ton of them. Klaus is the best example because that is genuinely one of my favorite animated movies just of all time now. I, I rewatch it every year at Christmas and I love it so much. I think it was... So well done. I love that animation style. Um, but they've had other ones. Over the Moon was a really fun film. Some really nice songs in it. I really enjoyed on a level I did not expect going in at all. Uh, same thing with Vivo. Lin-Manuel Miranda. I didn't realize, to be fair, that he was involved to such a degree in writing the songs for that before I saw it. So that's why I was a little surprised by that one. But even so, um, it was better than I expected. It was really fun. And... Um, yeah, even ones since then, things like Wish Dragon, which I didn't love and which was, let's face it, an Aladdin ripoff, I still thought that was good. That was better than I expected. And The Sea Beast last year. It was the same deal. I didn't love it, but it was better than I expected. So going into this one, I kind of, I had, looking at the trailer, I had really low expectations. Actually, I really kind of looked at it and went, oh, this does not look fun. The story is about this kid who lives in this country, which, it, this city, it used to be really fun, buzzing, full of life. Then there was a war. It's just, it's just kind of a war. It's, I don't know what this is meant to be inspired by or anything, but there was just a war and now they're sad. Everyone lives there, they're sad now. It's just a sad town, sad place, everyone's sad. This kid is an orphan of that war and um, he was taken by this soldier, saved um, before this house got blown up. Uh, where the midwife nun person had him and his sister because his mother had already died. Yeah, they don't really go into it. So he was split from his sister. The soldier keeps telling him she's dead. The kid believes maybe she's not. So the kid goes to this fortune teller and he says, you know, well, I think he, she actually said she is, she lives and he was like, whoa. And then he got to ask her one question and he asked, how do I find her? And the fortune teller tells him, follow the elephant. And he says, elephants aren't real. And that's, well, yeah, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. <laughs> they definitely said elephants, those don't exist. Because, uh, yeah. It's weird because, like, magic and actual magic and, like, there's this magician who conjures the elephant. Like, actual magic seems to exist in this world. And yet, 
they, the whole thing is about, oh yeah, learn to believe in the impossible, like elephants. <laughs> it's, it's a little, little bit weird. Yeah. Um, so yeah, basically <laughs> the plot from there is this magician accidentally conjures an elephant. They lock it up in the palace and then this weird duke count guy, eh, regal prick, tells the kid that he's got to complete three impossible tasks if he wants the elephant to be his so that the elephant can lead him to his long lost sister. Isn't that nice? Um, so yeah, I really didn't, going into it, have high expectations. The first act, I was really just sitting there like low, low expectations, not really feeling it. By halfway, I can't really say that it had me hooked, but I was, I was almost on board. I was hovering. <laughs> and, um, and as it went on, it, it's just got a little bit of nice heartfeltness to it. It's got a it's got a nice enough voice cast. I think Noah Jip's a bit maybe not for voice acting. Um, in general, it gets a little. Yeah, I just didn't love him as the lead. But apart from that, it was nice. The animation, don't love the style, personally. Um, the story, it's sweet. It's 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 kind of overly sweet, but yeah, it is a bit baffling the world building in general because yeah. It's made fairly clear from early on that magic is real in this world. It's unclear whether elephants are. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> I don't know why they wouldn't just pick like a mythical creature, but the, they chose an elephant. Um, <laughs> it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Don't don't matter. Um, so yeah, there's that, and then the fact that these impossible tasks. The first one. What was the first one? The first one is he has to beat this guy in a fight. This big, giant, buff guy. And then the second one is he has to fly. And then the third one is he has to make the countess who never laughs laugh. And I'm confused, at least for the first two, as to why just, you know, it's a world where magic exists. You don't believe that this kid could, like, learn a little magic or something to beat this guy in a fight or fly because you just levitate magic, you know? And those aren't the solutions he uses. <laughs> the solutions he, he uses to get around this are, well, yeah. Uh, it's not a great movie. <laughs> as far as Netflix animation goes, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, it's close. <laughs> it's not bad. It's not really terrible. I wouldn't watch it again. It's on the side of things where I, I say I, I don't really actually like it. But I, I want to make it clear that it's not actually, like, awful, you know? And for younger viewers, they might enjoy it well enough. I feel like there's other films they'd probably enjoy more. Probably not any of the ones that have come out this week, to be fair. But, uh, yeah, it, it's okay. It did disappoint me. But not really. <laughs> it kind of probably exceeded my expectations, but only because my expectations were so low. It was... I. <laughs> it's a... 42 out of 100. It's still on the verge of being kind of three stars, maybe, but it's on the side of that where I, I, I would say I didn't actually like it. Yeah, overall. So um, that's kind of all the new stuff there's been this week. I, yeah, as an overall, it was a pretty good week. You know, a good person was a little bit better than I thought it would be. John Wick 4, was, it blew the, me the fuck out of the water. I, I my goodness. 
that wow um <laughs> and then infinity pool and native Brady were both kind of par for the course on expectations probably yeah um magician's elephant yeah it's a letdown it's not a big letdown really so now it's time for movies are bad because while movies are good movies are also bad and uh there are just some of those movies out there that Sometimes you just pick one up and you go, I gotta see this because it's it just looks so bog-standard terrible, you know? There's some that have really great names. I've got a plan. I want to watch one for next week called Raiders of the Lost Shark. Hmm. <laughs> I'm so excited for that. But um, not all terrible movies are like that. Some of them are just... Really, really bog-standard down the line, exactly what you think they're going to be terrible. Um, this week I watched Raptor Ranch. <laughs> Raptor Ranch. And I just, you know what, I feel like it's best to actually read out the Wikipedia entry for part of the plot, just to give you an idea of the level this is on. A modern-day Texas community is overrun with vicious prehistoric raptors, and a group of people try to survive the raptor onslaught at a cattle ranch. In Fossil Ridge, Texas. Fossil Ridge. A reclusive Dr. Kane, experimenting with bird DNA. Bird DNA. Managed to create several species of carnivorous dinosaurs. Yeah, that's one thing. This film, not just raptors. Of course not, because you have to have, like, something bigger to introduce near the end. Yeah. He was hiding all of the dinosaurs in a barn, but there's, like, bigger ones than raptors in there. Yeah. <clears throat> one of them gets loose and causes a string of killings, drawing the attention of the police and the FBI, who send two agents to investigate. <sighs> now... <laughs> who, you might ask, is it trying to survive this onslaught of raptors in this rural community? Well, the lead is, uh, I can't remember, Abby, I think her name was. She's a, she's a waitress who wants to be a singer. Isn't that nice? And yet is still in this, like, tiny town. That sounds like the typical L.A. story. She's moved out there, right? No, she's still living in a rural community, expecting to make it as a singer out there, right? Uh, never mind. There is a band... What, I think I have their name here. It was um, Little Willie and the Willettes. So there's that. And there's college buddies Sheldon, Lucas, and Man Beast. So, yeah. It was indeed, I think, <laughs> meant to be a kind of horror comedy. It's meant to be a take on these other terrible films that are so terrible. Unfortunately, <laughs> it was pretty hard to decipher that. Uh, it, just because it's so ridiculous and so silly and so badly done that... There are some movies, I talked a couple weeks ago on the podcast about The Velocipaster, which is my favorite example of one of these that is so obviously and so perfectly done as a comedy, even though it is really that low on budget, that it, it really works and is actually phenomenally fun. I, I've watched The Velocipaster a lot of times. Raptor Ranch is not on that level. It doesn't make it clear enough, really. And I know. Wee Willie and the Willettes and Man Beast and all that bird DNA experimentation. But it it just doesn't 
make it clear enough, and I think I can only attribute that to the fact that it's just not funny enough. <laughs> so when they do ridiculous things, it's it's indecipherable whether it's doing this because it's trying to be silly and it's doing a silly thing, or whether it's a bad movie and therefore it's silly because it's so bad. Basically, it is just that bad, and I mean bad. Because I'll say film is bad, but even even with The Magician's Elephant, which is kind of a not very good, I'll, I'll mitigate that by saying it's not that terrible, though. This is um, irredeemable, which means one out of ten, one star, five out of a hundred. <laughs> it's, it's, it's on that level. It's not the worst movie I've ever seen, but it is pretty inexcusable. Um, it's low enough budget that obviously the dinosaur is just wow. Uh, the, the writing is nothing short of baffling. And the FBI agents that turn up to investigate the whole thing, they just disappear at like the end of the first act. And then they kind of wake up in their hotel room when it's over. And while it's like, oh, that's a funny bit because like the police are like useless or whatever. It, it didn't, it just, it didn't play correctly. It didn't come across like that. It didn't work. So yeah, it's one of those cases where they tried, you know, they, they were, they weren't just doing like a, oh yeah, we are low budget and can do a dinosaur thing. No, they were, they were like, we're low budget, but we'll do like a, a take on a dinosaur thing. So I think that's where like two of the five marks out of a hundred come from, from, from trying, but failed. they failed. they failed so hard, man. <laughs> and by the way, please, viewers, listeners, do tell me about other ones. I'm always looking out for more. I've got some great ones coming up that I've lined up. Um, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Shark next week. I'm very excited to watch that. I have no idea. I mean, with a title like that, it's got to be like at least kind of funny, right? It, I hope so, and I hope that makes it higher than 5 out of 100. <laughs> but I can't guarantee it. Dear Lord. Yeah. I mean, I've seen Killer Sofa. I've seen Rubber the film about a murderous tire. I've seen Night of the Were-Rooster, but there's just something about ones like that that really go all the way, balls to the wall in seeing that, that work. Whereas this one, it was way too toned down for like a comedy, and yet it was way too hyped up and cookie for a serious one. It was just this messy, in-between, gross thing that exists. So yeah, not good. Five out of a hundred. Sad when you have to go into the single digits when you mark out of 100. It really is, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, final segment for the week. We normally talk about something very big in pop culture outside of movies themselves. Um, and I didn't really have one that I was super excited about this week. So I kind of decided, why don't we just do a little Oscars post-mortem for the year? Because um, the Oscars were a couple of weeks ago. We've all had time to reflect a little bit. And you know what? I gotta say, I do watch the Oscars live every year. And I have done for the last few years. And this is definitely the time when I've been least disappointed at the end of the night. <laughs> Normally I feel some level of disappointment. I, last year even, I liked Coda. But I thought other films were better, had more of a chance. And yeah. That's normally the case with the Best Picture winner. To be fair... I'll start the conversation by saying Everything Everywhere All at Once wasn't my favorite of the nominees. I mean, Top Gun Maverick. Oh my god. <laughs> I could do an entire podcast episode on Top Gun Maverick. Actually, 
I was talking, I was saying John Wick Chapter 4. Yeah, I haven't seen an action movie on that level in a while. Okay, Top Gun Maverick was better. But it's such a different kind of action movie that you don't even think about it in the same conversation as John Wick. You know, it's two completely different styles. But that is, that's probably the best action movie. Oh my god. <laughs> Maybe just the best action movie <laughs> to ever exist. My goodness, it is so goddamn good. I love that movie. And I never quite tricked myself into believing it actually had a chance. So I was kind of always rooting for everything everywhere all at once over any of the ones that were being seriously considered. But I am um, I'm always gonna be a little bit sad that Top Gun Maverick didn't win. Um still though, much happier with that as a Best Picture Oscar winner um than I have been with most recent ones. Let me wait, actually let me have a quick look. I kind of it's always so hard to think about the last few years in these terms, but yeah, I mean Coda it I like Coda. I really like Coda. Um, but it just, I, I really, I'm Northern Irish and Belfast and, and June were both so goddamn good that I really wanted it to be one of them. So I'll kind of always be like, ah, how about that? Uh, Nomadland, yeah, again, these are films that I like, but in the context of the list, they're basically middle of the pack for me. So it is a little bit disappointing. I mean, Nomadland, yeah, I really liked Mank that year, like Trials of Chicago 7, so I was let down. Parasite, I'll say, that was my favourite of those movies that year. That that was a clean favourite for me of, of that year, so I was glad that that won. But, yeah, looking back through the last few years, I really liked Green Book, Shape of Water, Moonlight. Yeah. Generally, I'm uninspired. By the Best Picture winner, I think. So I wasn't uninspired by everything I ever wrote once. I think that's a five-star film, fantastic film. I was glad that Michelle Yeoh and Jimmy Lee Curtis both won their acting Oscars. Brilliant. Oh, and Kihui Kwan. Oh, and his speech. That was so nice. That was so good. That was so well done. Um, and Brendan Fraser was the other big one, because the Daniels also just won <laughs> for everything I ever wrote once, um, the directors. So... It was kind of, it was a kind of, it felt like a sweep in some ways. It really just went through the major ones that it could win because it didn't really have a proper Best Actor nominee. It didn't have any Best Actor nominee. So, wow. And then Brendan Fraser. I loved The Wheel. I don't know if I talked about that on the podcast, but I loved The Wheel. Um, I didn't think the other aspects of the film were as weak as other people were saying they were. I really liked just the film. But his performance was just, oh breathtaking you know incredible um and i'm really glad that he won as well i don't think in most of the major categories i was let down at all throughout this oscars which is impressive the songs and performances they put on were great jimmy kimmel was really well done hosting it really after last year and the whole slap and all that crap they just they managed this year with a plum everything i was really glad that they had all of the categories even though it was quite a long show i was glad that they had all the categories in um, on the proper show. Just felt right. I just feel wrong without that. Um, so yeah, I thought I should just mention that actually, well done Oscars, you know? <laughs> the Oscars kind of gets more in the news for scandals in the last like 10 years than anything else. And you know what? It's just nice to take a moment and go, yeah, you know what? Did well there. And everything everyone wants it. I've heard people complaining and turning on it online. No, I still think it was fantastic. I still think I mean, it wasn't my actual favorite film of the year, but it was it was up there, and it was awesome, and it was different, 
And I love that films with that kind of kookiness and style to them can now win at those levels, those awards. Because that's a shift that it feels like that shift had already happened in some way, but it hadn't to like the Oscars and these major award shows. What's the kookiest, weirdest film that's really won any of those? It's It hasn't happened until now. So I'm really glad about that. And that's us pretty much wrapped up for the week. Whew. There was a lot of stuff there. John Wick Chapter 4, that just blew me out. Like, just talking about it <laughs> blew me out for the rest of the podcast a little bit in the same way that it blew me out after I saw it in the cinema. God, it was awesome. It was awesome. Not as good as Top Gun Maverick. Second best action movie in... Last 10 years? I'd, would I be happy to say that? Not without more thought behind it, but it's definitely in my top five action movies in the last 10 years. Uh, it's got to be. That was incredible. Um, so, the look ahead is our final thing. Next week, uh, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. What do I think about that? When I first saw the first trailer, I really thought, yikes, <laughs> that is going to flop hard and suck pretty hard. But as I see more trailers about it, see more about what the style they're like going for is, I've heard it compared from like test screenings to like Thor Ragnarok. I, I definitely don't think I'll like it as much as that, but I think it's going to comfortably be a kind of four-star blockbuster that's enjoyable enough. I like Chris Pine. I think the cast looks good and will be fun, and it looks like it does have a fun kind of tongue-in-cheek style, which for many of my experiences playing Dungeons & Dragons, matches what you would experience during a game. So I'm looking forward to that. I think it'll be fun. Good popcorn thriller for people who don't know the game and good kind of uh-uh for people who do know the game. I'm hoping that's kind of the level it's on, but I don't expect five stars. Um, the Tetris movie is coming out next week. I really like Taron Egerton. I'm interested to see the style they go with on this. I think it's going to be released on Apple TV, so I'm hoping I can get that viewed before uh, I film next week. I... I don't know what to make of it. I saw the I saw the trailer once, um, and, and uh, yeah, I'm expecting again a kind of maybe low four stars type thing. These true to life stories, eh, they don't normally have enough like cookiness and fun to them. I'm really I'm more excited for Air, which is coming out in two weeks. I think that could end up quite good. Yeah, Tetris. I'm hoping it'll be fun. I like Taron Egerton as a lead. Not expecting a huge amount out of it. Um, there's not a huge amount actually coming out next week, apart from those two that I've seen. So I don't know if I'll fit in some other early screens for things like Air or uh, other films. Um, I'm intending on probably doing a good segment on Creed 3 because uh, I missed it. <laughs> I, I kind of missed that one because I had not seen some of the previous Rocky films and I was missing Creed 2. So I was like, right, I'll catch up. And then I'll watch Creed 3. So I might go see that before it leaves the cinema and uh, do a whole segment on the Rocky and Creed franchise in general. After two really busy weeks, it's going to be a little bit of a light week next week. But I'm going to have fun with it. I'm expecting good things from Creed 3. I've heard good things. Hoping that that's tipping the scales of five stars. Rocky franchise is pretty good about tipping around with those scales for me. I've had some that are definitely five star films. I've had some that are less Rocky Five, <laughs> but I'll talk about that more next week, and I'll talk about Raiders of the Lost Shark. That is going to be a one-star film, I am almost convinced. So, thank you guys very much for watching this week. I hope you had a lot of fun and enjoyed, and uh, I will see you again next episode. <laughs>